Wintertime in Dunridge is brutal. If you've never spent a winter at high altitudes in northern New England, consider yourself lucky. Every morning begins with the nearly insurmountable challenge of breaking out of the encapsulating cocoon of security that is a warm bed, followed by a day of stiff joints and numb limbs. Add to that the physical impedance of ice, slush, and snow to your daily routine, and you've got a recipe for four solid months of pure misery. Between the months of November and February, the very idea of precipitation that isn't frozen in some capacity is unheard of. Naturally, the town government has grown accustomed to keeping the roads clean most of the time, but if your journey takes you off the beaten path, you're in for a rough excursion. The day that I met with Sapphire just happened to coincide with one of the heaviest snowfalls of the year, so our expedition into the woods was anything but smooth. I'm not exactly sure what we expected to find with the ground layered beneath more than five inches of fresh powder, but I've learned that Sapphire isn't the type of person to let reason stop her from enjoying a perfectly bad idea. I think I could stand to learn a thing or two from her in that regard. We arrived just past sundown, and there didn't seem to be anyone hanging around the library where we entered the trails, which we saw as a good sign. Thanks to the canopy of bare branches overhead, the narrow trails were a bit more friendly to traversing, though we still needed to stop at times to dig out snowbanks standing in our way. If it weren't for our tracks in the snow, we would have never realized just how many times we doubled back on our own path. It seemed as if the trails were constantly forking off into infinite directions. Even as we circled back to familiar tracks, the trails looked completely different at every turn, as if they were shifting beneath our feet winding us deeper and deeper into the grasp of the forest. With every step, the feeling of being stalked by some unknown predator grew, little by little, like claws slowly digging into us. We trudged through the winding trails for what felt like hours before catching the first glimpse of tracks that weren't made by us. Given the depth of the snow, they weren't particularly clear, but we could make out four big toes three in the front of the foot and one in the back, which appeared to have long nails. They were larger than human tracks, but not quite as large as something like a bear. The foot itself appeared narrow and long, and we couldn't quite pair it with any species of local wildlife that either of us had ever seen. Though, to be fair, neither of us are exactly experts on the subject. As we slowly followed the tracks through the woods, gripped with fear... Every tiny sound of shuffling brush had us stopping to scan our surroundings, like prey that knows it's within its final moments. Eventually, we caught sight of a clearing, filled with the light of the moon ahead of us, and carefully made our way toward it, moving at a snail's pace and listening for any noise at all. In the center of the small clearing, there was a circular mound of snow taking up the majority of the space, as if the falling powder had piled atop something now hidden. It was at this point that the feeling of dread hit its peak, and I was nearly unable to bring myself to step out into the moonlight, but Sapphire, who for the first time since I had met her was also visibly nervous, insisted that it was too late to turn back when we were finally on the cusp of discovering something. So we slowly began clearing the mound of snow, being careful not to make too much noise. What we uncovered was a stone dais, roughly ten feet in diameter. Around its perimeter were carvings in a language that neither of us had ever seen, and as freaked out as we were by this, it only got worse as we began to clear the snow toward the center of the structure, 
uncovering a huge blackish red stain that was unmistakably dried blood. The various shades of reds, browns, and black gave the impression that this wasn't a single stain, but many layers of blood spilled over months or even years. It was only then that we looked up towards the mountain ledge high above us to realize that under the pale light of the moon, we could make out the familiar shape of the cliff diner. about it now, I'm not exactly sure what I intended to find when I began this investigation, but I can say with absolute certainty that evidence of sacrificial murders was not on the list. It's difficult to put into words just how I've been feeling over the days since that night. If I'm being honest, my first instinct was to halt the investigation and scrub this podcast from the internet entirely, suddenly feeling as though I'd gotten in way over my head. I was completely convinced that we wouldn't make it out of that forest alive. The walk back was nearly silent, not because we didn't have anything to say, but because we were both terrified of being discovered by whoever else may be out there. That night, and each night since, I found myself unable to sleep, waiting for someone to show up at my door and drag me back to that clearing. I haven't stopped looking over my shoulder. Everyone in town suddenly looks like a suspect to me, Anyone I know could be involved in this, and I have no way of telling who. The next morning, I had a long conversation with Sapphire. I told her that I had been turning over the decision of whether to call off this project for my own safety and comfort. She told me that after what she had seen, she wouldn't be turning back. If I decided to put an end to my investigation, she wouldn't hold it against me, but she felt that, given what we'd uncovered, someone needed to bring this twisted story to light. And she was right. When I started this podcast, it was to answer the questions that everyone else seemed too scared to touch, and to bring the strange story of our little mountain town to the public. And if I'm just going to turn and run as soon as I start uncovering some answers, then this whole thing will have been a waste of time. My mom always used to say, when you feel like you've reached the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. So I will persist. It may cost me my sanity, or worse but I feel like I have an obligation to continue what I set out to do. So the next question is, where exactly do we go from here? At this point, our goal is to discover who's behind this strange site in the forest and for how long it's existed. While it was difficult to tell under the cover of night, it looked old. Between the layers of aged bloodstains and the weathering on the stone, I wouldn't be surprised to find out it stood there for a hundred years or more. There's exactly one person I know of who has the potential to provide some answers about something like that. My high school history teacher, Mr. Gardner. Yes, I know that sounds weird. I go from finding what I can only assume is a human sacrifice site to catching up with one of my high school teachers. But if you'd ever met Mr. Gardner, you'd understand. 
This is a man obsessed with history, both early American and specifically local history. He had stories to tell about everything in town and every town in the state. His class would so often be held up by him getting lost in a rant about something that interested him personally that I don't think we ever actually covered any of the syllabus he had handed out on day one, to the delight of all the students, of course. I reached out to Mr. Gardner, who, of course, still lives here in town, and he seemed delighted for an opportunity to be a part of the project. I met him in his classroom one day after school to share quite an interesting conversation. Mr. Gardner, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Well, I must say I'm similarly thrilled to see a former student has become so invested in the history of our town. After you asked me to be on the podcast, I took the time to listen to your first three episodes, and I must say, they're quite interesting. Thanks. It hasn't exactly taken off yet, but I think that could change soon. That's great news. You must have something big planned for future episodes then. Yeah, something like that. Actually, that's where you come in. I don't want to say too much yet until we learn a bit more, but Sapphire and I have stumbled on some pretty weird stuff that we think might trace back pretty far, and I was hoping you could give me a bit of a history lesson on Dunridge. Of course. That is a specialty of mine, after all. You know, it's not easy compiling information about Dunridge. There aren't exactly books written about the place. Just lots of old stories and articles. Right. And that's exactly why I think you might be the only person who can help me. I'll do what I can, at least. So what is it you're hoping to know? We've got a pretty rich history here. It could be a bit much to cover in one of your short interviews. So, this might sound a little weird, but I'm looking for the darkest stuff you know about. Any evidence of human sacrifice, or, I guess, executions, or maybe cults? Huh, interesting. You must have really come across something intriguing, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not exactly related to a cult, but public execution does bring one particularly gruesome story to mind. Oh, let's hear it. All right. Well, this dates back to the earliest days of Dunridge, when it was just a secluded village of runaways. Runaways? That's right. A group of prisoners who escaped a jail in Massachusetts gathered up as many of their friends and families as they could and ran away under the cover of night. After being on the run for weeks, they settled in a secluded place up in the mountains to start their new community as free men and women. And that community became Dunridge? You got it. But they were a community of very paranoid people. Truth is, after a couple of months, anyone who had been looking for the fugitives had probably given up and gone home. But no one in the newly founded village of Dunridge wanted to risk being found out, and so the leaders of the group decided on a very strict rule that no one be allowed to leave the settlement until they were absolutely sure the outside world was safe for them. Well, months turned into years, and the little community was thriving. Except some of the people were beginning to get a bit fed up with their complete lack of contact with the outside world. The council that was in charge of the village, however, had only grown more paranoid about the community that they had worked so hard to cultivate being torn apart by the impatience of these people. Naturally, a divide began to form. Now, it just so happened that that year was a particularly bad one for farming. While many of the people from early Dunridge had come from farms and knew how to grow food well enough, the growing season here in the mountains is much shorter and harsher than what they were used to. So growing enough food for the village turned out to be much more of a challenge than expected. And there was one young man, Henry Green, 
who pleaded with the council to allow him to ride out and find a nearby town so that he could offer to trade for food and help to feed the village. While the town was lacking in crops, they more than made up for in able-bodied men who could easily offer labor to nearby towns in exchange for enough food to make it through the winter. To the surprise of no one, however, the council staunchly refused. But Henry wasn't going to let his family or his community starve because of a bunch of paranoid men. So he made the decision to sneak away and ride off to find help, despite the council's refusal. But he was found out. Before he could make it more than a mile outside the village, he was captured and dragged back to town. In an attempt to make an example of him, the council ordered him to be publicly executed in a fashion that was considered brutal, even for the time period. While it may be in poor taste to go into gruesome detail on the show, it's well documented that his execution was about as painful as it could possibly be. Uh, it's alright to go into a bit of detail. If it's too gruesome, I can exclude it from the episode. Sawing. Sawing? You mean he was killed with a saw? Exactly. Hung upside down and sawn in half. What the fuck? Yeah. Like I said, not as painful as it can get. So, do you know how the rest of the village reacted? Well, with fear, of course. The information surrounding what happened next is a bit scarce. Some people say the council went mad with power executing anyone who spoke up about making contact with the outside world. There are even some accounts saying that they made deals with demons to terrorize anyone who so much as thought about leaving. This, of course, is all based on perceptions of people in the early 18th century, so I'd take it with a grain of salt. Right, of course. What about the story of Henry Green and the execution? How much of that do you think could actually be true? I suppose there's no way to know, really. It seems a bit extreme, and like I said, there aren't a whole lot of resources to research this sort of stuff. But stories about it have been found in a number of journals and letters written by people who were alive at the time, so I'd imagine it's at least partially true. Interesting. Well, is there anything else in relation to that time period that you think I might want to know? Nothing that I would consider even remotely reliable information. I'd say that about covers the dark past you were looking for. Yeah. Dark past might be an understatement. After chatting with Mr. Gardner, I wasn't really sure what to think. Even if that story was true, how could it still be affecting Dunridge today? Those people are all dead, and obviously there isn't anyone preventing us from having contact with the outside world anymore. But still, there's no denying what we saw in the woods last week. Something weird is happening to people here, and so far, this is the only story I've found that could have any sort of connection to it. But this is only if that story is even true in the first place. Just like Mr. Gardner said, it's all based on accounts of people who are long dead. There's no real proof of any of it. I was feeling the same way that I felt for the majority of this investigation. Like I'm on the verge of putting all the puzzle pieces together, but I just don't know where to turn next. Like every road is a dead end. Every time I think I've found an answer, it only leads to more questions. What's the real story behind that stone dais in the woods? Who would be doing something like this? And of course, that one question that keeps looming over this entire investigation, why? 
I knew that I had a lot to discuss with Sapphire and was hoping that she could help point me in the right direction to keep digging up more pieces of this puzzle, but before I could even get in touch with her, a new piece seemed to uncover itself in the form of an anonymous voicemail. Elliot Campbell, it is time for your investigation to come to an end. What you are digging into is a subject that should remain untouched for your own good and the good of the people of Dunridge. If you don't want to end up the subject of your own unsolved mystery, you will follow my instructions exactly. Take down all the episodes of your show. Eliminate any evidence that you've collected throughout this process. And I mean everything. All of the audio you've collected during your interviews, the photos you took on the night Lewis died, all of it. You will not talk of this again, unless it is to assure anyone who asks that you are certain that there was nothing to be found. The same goes for your partner, Sapphire. If you comply with my demands, no harm will come to you, and you may continue living your comfortable life here in Dunridge. What I am offering you is a very rare opportunity to get yourself out of a very bad situation before it goes too far. One way or another, your investigation will come to an end very soon, and you can trust me when I say that you'll be much better off if it ends with your full cooperation. Now, I know what you're thinking. At this point, any sensible person would realize that they've dug themselves in just a bit too deep and take a good opportunity to get out. And you're probably right, but we're both already aware that the fact that you're listening to this episode now means I must not exactly be so sensible. Am I scared? Of course. But I also can't ignore the opportunity that this gives me. What I have here is definitive proof that there is something to be uncovered. I have some digging to do before I can say for sure who left me this message, but I just know that there has to be some clue here that can help me finally solve this mystery. <laughs>